This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it, help spread the word, and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. If you can't dance it, you can't play it. That's what horn player Sarah Willis learned when she put out her recording Mozarty Mambo, and she really learned it for volume two of Mozarty Mambo because it includes a set of six Cuban dances which she commissioned. And, of course, she was starting to play them and kind of just went ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. <laughs> and then one of the composers got her out of the chair and taught her how to dance all six of the dances. So you'll hear the result on this new recording, which also features two of Mozart's horn concertos. We're hearing about it this week on New Classical Tracks, Mozarty Mambo, Volume 2. From American Public Media, I'm Julia Macher. Thank you, Sarah, for doing this. It was such a joy to talk to you the last time that I'm very excited to follow up on that conversation. Two years ago, you released your first recording inspired by the time that you spent in Cuba working with horn students, the Havana Lyceum Orchestra, and conductor Jose Antonio Mendez Padron. Can you talk a little bit about how that project helped to raise awareness for the classical music making that's going on in Cuba today? Yes, well, it's lovely to be back. Thank you, Julie. I mean, two years have just gone past so quickly, haven't they? And what two years we've had. Oh, my goodness, the world changed. I remember um, finishing the recording in January 2020 um, with the Havana Lacey Orchestra in Havana and getting on the plane at the end of January. And um, in Cuba, you don't have much internet. You don't have much contact with the outside world. And we were all in our Mozart Mambo. Um, d- d- a dream. Um, so we we hadn't paid any attention to what was going on. And I got on the plane and I opened a newspaper and I read about some virus that somebody had discovered somewhere and, uh, and just thought, oh, well, whatever. Got home. And of course, a few weeks later, the world shut down. So when Mozart Imambo first came out um, in July of 2020, it was a completely different world than it is now. We were Most of us were in lockdown. We hadn't had any live music. We hadn't um, been out dancing. And, and I think it was really wonderful to see how the world really embraced this album. I mean, we had no idea. We just, we just put out there what we loved and we believed in it, but we had no idea how the world would, would see it. So it's been absolutely wonderful to see and, and hear from so many people who said it, it's meant a lot to them who've enjoyed it. But the best thing for me, of course, is this awareness of the, the music making going on in Cuba. Now we all know that there's fantastic music coming out of Cuba. We've known that forever. And the Buena Vista Social Club made a made an even bigger thing of it for us. But that that there were such good classical musicians there. Did you know that, Julie? I didn't before I met these people. Well, I had heard rumors when uh, the Minnesota Orchestra went there, for example, right after, um, you know, everything was opened up and they took a trip there and they, you know, did some educational outreach and things, too. So but prior to that, I had no idea. And I also didn't know that Mozart had a big statue there that 
and he was so revered. You you shared that with me last time we spoke. That's right. And now they've they've even corrected his name. I think I told you the the name on the statue was Wolf Fang Amadeus Mozart, but now that's been corrected. So somebody heard your podcast. <laughs> Well, you have just released volume two as a follow-up to that recording, and this is giving you a chance to continue recording the Mozart horn concertos and a few other things. You start off the recording, though, with Mozart's horn concerto number two in E-flat major. Why did you start off the recording with that horn concerto? Well, of course, it would make chronological sense to start in in with number one. But somehow, for me, recording these, I'm rediscovering the Mozart horn concertos. You know, the, for us horn players, we we grow up with the Mozart horn concertos. You know, when we, we haven't got the repertoire that a pianist has or a violinist. We haven't we haven't got that many pieces. So we play Mozart all the time. Um, so when I, I decided I wanted to record them, I had to really throw away all my students student worries that I'd had with it. I've listened to it a thousand times in auditions. I've prepared it for many students. I just wanted to have a completely clean slate with it. So I went back and, and tried to find the music in it again without any of the traumas I'd been through as a student. And I found that number two was actually the most danceable of them. And recording that in Havana with the Havana Lyceum Orchestra and seeing them dance this Mozart because they literally dance when they play. It doesn't matter what they're they're playing, whether it's mambo, cha-cha-cha or Mozart. They are always moving. And you see that all over Cuba. People are always, always dancing. They always have some sort of rhythm going on, whether they're talking to their friends or standing in a line waiting for food um, or, or, you know, just on the street or cooking. They're always in some sort of movement. And that's how the music play and so I thought it really could start the album really well because we've we've called it Mozart in Mambo Cuban Dances in a reference to the the horn concerto that's coming um, on the album but I thought Mozart number two was the most danceable of all of them and also it's an E flat and E flat is a bit of a happier key for me than the first concerto it's in D and D is a little fumbly on the horn so we put that in a bit later talk about that. So the concerto number one in D major also appears on this recording, and it requires a lot of slow practice with the metronome. Oh, yes. Can you talk about why? (laughs) Why is that so critical to this work? Well, Mozart had written the horn concertos for a natural horn, which means they wouldn't have had the valve opportunities. They would have, the horn players then would have used their hands to get the chromatic notes, but most of it could be done more or less on just sort of the, with the lips and the air and the natural harmonics. Now, with a valve torn, it's a it's a different kettle of fish. You have to press the valves for to get the notes, and your hand um, is just in the bell for the sound and the intonation. So, when you're playing in E flat, you do use a lot of your first and second fingers. And when you're playing in D, you use your second and third finger. Now, I'm not sure if anyone, everyone listening to this, they can all try waggling their third finger now, their ring finger. It's slower, isn't it? It's not as strong. Yeah. No, it's not as strong. So when we're trying to play... (laughs) 
like in the first movement of the of the first concerto, um, on a natural horn, it would have just been a little bit of you know moving your hand inside the bell and and your lips, and it's funnily enough a little bit easier on the natural horn. But for all of us modern day horn players, Mozart Concerto Number no. One in D means a lot of third finger work, and I had to really like like it's like uh, training my my fingers for the Horn Olympics. I had to practice with the metronome and get faster and faster. So, yeah, that that that's that's the story behind Mozart One. And then I played it in a concert. I'd never played it live before. Now there's not so many high notes in it, so we just thought, okay, it'll be it'll be quite a neat, nice, easy start to the concert. And I played it in Havana, and I was like, oh man, <laughs> and my little finger was like on strike. It's like I don't want to be doing this while I'm nervous. So yes, but it's still beautiful. <laughs> And it's actually, I'm sure, a real relief for younger horn players to hear you speak about this, because how long have you been playing the horn? Oh, forever. I start, Well, not forever. I started when I was 14, which is quite late, actually, um, to start a, a second instrument. I was playing piano before that. And uh, it was just my instrument from, from day one. I loved it so much. But yes, I mean, the, this slow practice... There's no other way around it. As a horn player, I think as a musician in general, you're only as good as your last concert. And just because I play in the Berlin Phil doesn't mean I don't have to practice. It, it, just the opposite. I have to practice more because I'm in the Berlin Phil because, you know, there's a lot more at stake there. They, they really require perfection. And so if I'm going to bring out an album of Mozart horn concertos and so many fantastic horn players have recorded it, recorded them before me. Of course, I have to practice them and I have to go back to the roots, practice slowly, practice with a tuning machine, with a metronome and and sing it a lot. That's also very important. If I remember correctly now, this is the first time that you have recorded the Mozart horn concertos. And you've also said that this would be the only way to record them with this orchestra and this conductor in Cuba. Can you talk more about that, please? Well, this conductor, Jose Antonio Mendes Padron, and you remember we call him Pepe. It's a lot easier than uh, than those four names altogether. So in, in Pepe, I have found my musical soulmate. And it's so wonderful as a musician when you meet someone that you don't even have to talk about stuff with, not phrasing, not uh, musical ideas, articulation. You're just on the same wavelength. Now, I'm lucky I play in a fantastic orchestra and there are many amazing musicians there. So I, I have had this experience in my life before that I've met people that I thought, hmm, you know, there's just such a good musical communication. We're on the same wavelength. But to find someone in Cuba <laughs> that, that just understood the way that I love Mozart and he loves it exactly the same, it, it was very, very special. And I am not um, a big time soloist. It's not something I've ever felt very comfortable doing. I mean, horn players are always soloists. They have the potential to ruin a concert with one note. So we always have to, to you know, to think about what we're doing and try and try for perfection. And uh, we're always some sort of a soloist. And when I met Pepe and heard his orchestra play, it wasn't just Pepe, it was the all the musicians, they found this way of playing Mozart that just really spoke to my heart, like Cuban music had done. I, I mean, I'd heard lots and lots of music, but somehow Cuban music was the music that got really under my skin and into my body and into my soul. And the way the Havana Lyceum Orchestra was playing Mozart did the same thing. And I stood there and I thought, could I dare to do this? Could I dare to, to, to ask an orchestra from Havana to record these things with me? I mean, I could do it really comfortably in a studio with air conditioning in Berlin or in Salzburg or, or in New York or who knows. 
But I decided I wanted to try it with this orchestra because they play really, really fantastically well. They just had the the bad luck that they play on they played on quite horrible instruments. But thanks to the first album, we've been able to 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 improve that. And you can really hear that on the second album. Oh, wait, expand on that. Did they get new instruments with some profits from that recording? That was exactly what we did with the first recording. We set up an Instruments for Cuba fund and um, the the sales of the, the physical CD um, helped, helped the fund grow. And also some very generous people donated to it. And also some even more generous people donated instruments. So we have some fantastic violins. We managed to buy a new clarinet, a new flute. We even bought two double basses, which we got back in our hand luggage to Cuba last summer. (laughs) It was a crazy trip. We have three new horns for the orchestra, lots of strings, lots of uh, new reeds for the clarinets and new percussion instruments. So the first album did really fantastic things for this orchestra. And it's improved the quality enormously. The the recording engineer, when he arrived for the first session for the second album, was like, wow, what's happened to this orchestra? They sound amazing. So that was very important to me. Mozart Mambo has become more than just uh, an album. It's it's a real project. And and we're looking after younger players in Cuba and and, and trying to help them get better instruments and and play in the Havana Lyceum Orchestra. So we're doing the same with album two. And uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun and it's lovely to see how generous people are. Mozart, the music of Mozart, frames this recording, volume two, and then nestled in the middle is a landmark original work. And the original idea was to create the first Cuban horn concerto, but it really turned out to be more of a suite of dances. Talk a little bit about this suite and how it's also created this wonderful map of uh, Cuba's musical heritage. Well, this piece is so incredibly important for me. I decided for album two that I wanted to um, do offer some sort of original work because it's all very well mixing Mozart and Mambo together and doing this fusion that we love so much. But I really wanted to do something for future generations of horn players. And I also wanted to find out more about Cuban music. We'd done Mambo in the first album and there's so many more. We have so many styles of Cuban music that I, I was really desperate to find out about. So I put out a little competition call in in Cuba, and I said I'd like a young Cuban composer to compose me a horn concerto. And I asked anyone who was interested to to submit a minute of music, minute or two of music for horn, strings, and Cuban percussion. And then I would choose one. So with the result that I now have six composers who wrote me six dances, <laughs> four horn, strings, and percussion, because there were so many good entries. I I couldn't decide, and uh, and so each of these six dances has it, they're also completely different, and I'm so happy that it's it's that I have these six young composers. I mean, for me, it's a little bit like a second Buena Vista Social Club. It's like it's like a young version of the Buena Vista Social Club. What what Wim Wenders and Ray Cooter did with the original Buena Vista Social Club, they captured the music of these amazing old guys on on camera and audio. Um, and 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 shared it with the world. And what we've done 
is we, we've got these six original dances, which they all come from different places in Cuba. So that's this roadmap element of it. They all originate in different towns and different parts of the country. And these composers have had to write down these rhythms. They're, they're, some of them are well-known rhythms, like the cha-cha-cha or the, the bolero. But there are other ones that you probably hadn't heard of either, the changui the guaguanco. <laughs> I mean, there, there are rhythms that are played in, you know, at, at parties in the country, you know, for the workers and, and for, you know, christenings and weddings, and they haven't been written down. And so our composers have had to write these rhythms down in a way that we classical musicians can understand them. And it means we're preserving these rhythms of Cuba for forever after, and that also these th these rhythms will be now out in our classical world and for people to play them. So it's been it's been quite an amazing education experience as well. And it was for you in trying to interpret what they wrote down, right? Can oh, you talk yes. about maybe uh, <laughs> you know what were some of those challenges you faced and where we might hear them in these dances? Oh, yes. Well, you'll hear six original dances. They are original because they are new melodies and, and, and newly scored. They're not scored in a way that you would hear them in Cuba. You would hear them with a band in Cuba, you know, with masses of percussion and, and whatever instruments available. But here you hear them with a French horn. So that was already a big challenge to try and convert this Cuban popular music onto the French horn. And they are um, they are traditional dances. So we have a son. Which is a, a type of, of salsa music, but with the emphasis on the two and the four. We have a danson. which is the national dance of Cuba. Then a guaguanco, which is an Afro-Cuban rumba. A bolero, which you know, beautiful love song. cha-cha-cha, which is one of my favorite Cuban dances of all. And then we finish with a changui, which comes down um, from Guantanamera, which is right down the other end of Cuba. And it's it's played well we we literally we we found out it was played in the in the banana plantations and so what we did was we traveled all around cuba and we made a film we played and filmed each dance in the place it would have come from so doing that or preparing for that I realized I was still playing awfully classically. You know, even though the composers had managed to write down the accents and the dots and the dashes and the slurs, and I'd been working with them for like literally over, over a year for this, 
I still didn't feel like I was qualified to do these dances justice because you've heard Cuban music. It's it's really easy and loose and, you know, you just feel it in your body. And I was still going ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, which is... <laughs> and I called on one of the composers to help me. He was in Germany at the time, Juniet Lombida. And he he came to the Philharmonie in Berlin and we spent an amazing afternoon where I played in the pieces and he he was like, yeah, you play really good horn. <laughs> he said, but that's not Cuban what you're doing. He said, sing it to me. So we sang it and it got a bit better. And he said, I'm sorry, Chica, you're going to have to dance it. He said, if you can't play it, you can't dance it. <laughs> so he got me up out of my chair and we literally danced all these different dances and I spent two or three months really learning these dances. And I'm not an amazing dancer, but I know where the beat is. It's all about the clave, the beat, the groove in Cuban music. And each dance has a different emphasis, like the Afro-Cuban rumba, until you see how the, you go down into your knees and you, you it's all in the knees and the, and the hips and you feel this sort of heaviness in your lower body and then try and move it to the beat. Changui, it's like uh, 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 uh. it's always on the offbeat. So it's like dancing salsa with hiccups. And until your shoulders do this with you, I wish our, our listeners could see that now. <laughs> um, until your shoulders do that, you can't get a feeling for this offbeat. That was for me the most difficult one. But I really hope <laughs> that that I managed to get it a little bit more authentic. And it's the first time anyone's done this on the French horn. So, yeah, I would be the proudest person in the world if I knew that future generations of horn players are going to be playing this. Many of these dances have a little nod to you in one way or another. Uh, the last one that you just mentioned, the Changui, actually was written for you, right? In honor of you, it means, hey girl. That's right. I, all the six dances were written for me because I, I commissioned them. And uh, quite a few of the composers, they've written all the dedications in, in the scores, but uh, some of them have put them into the title. So the, the title of the Changui is Un Changui Parasari, Pasari, which means Sar for Sarah. Sari is my nickname in Cuba. And Aikomai means hey girl, but it also means hey comrade, but we didn't want to put that on the on the album. Um, hey worker, hey chica, because you they they'd go past the, the workers in the field and they'd say, hey comrade, hey girl. So I preferred the hey girl type. And then we have the Saracha, which is the cha-cha-cha. And they, they change it to Saracha. And then, of course, we have the Sarabanda, which appears. So there's a lot of Sara going on there. But yeah, it, it's nice. It's very, very personal. And I worked very closely with each composer. It was a lot of a lot of WhatsApp calls and a lot of a lot of sending music backwards and forwards because they've never written for horn before either. And none of us really knew what we were going to do and if I could even play it. And some of them sent things. I was like, guys, are you crazy? I can't play that. But most of that stuff stayed in. <laughs> There's also one dance that has an inside joke about chocolate. <laughs> we do, in, in the, in the Sara Cha, we have um, a chorus. 
I did promise chocolate to the person that came up with the best koro for the for the saracha. Uh, but because I that's what I do when I when I travel to Cuba, I have to take suitcases full of food and chocolate because they really have nothing there right now. It's tragic. Whenever I travel to Cuba, I travel with four or five or these this time six suitcases and I just bring everything I can. My friends send me lists of what they need and they're the craziest things you could even imagine, a, a screwdriver or a part of a car or 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 something for, for kids or children's medicine. It's right now in Cuba, times are really tough and, and COVID really damaged the country a lot and now now just after the hurricane and it really breaks my heart that they have such a rough time there right now so whenever i go i try to cheer up their lives <laughs> by bringing as much as i can for example pepe our conductor is a great bread maker he can make the most fantastic bread but there's no yeast and there's no flour in cuba right now so yeast and flour go into my suitcases and also i bring a lot of chocolate and this time I brought really a lot of chocolate for various reasons. One, because I, I like to make them smile. And two, I brought some chocolate as a prize because we needed some texts for this for this piece, for the Cuban dances. In the Saracha, they sing a text. They sing uh, El Corno de Sara Sonando en toda La Habana. The, the horn of Sarah uh, sounds over the whole of, of Havana. Um, the horn of Sarah dances with this cha-cha-cha. Now, it sounds so simple, but someone had to come up with it and it had to fit exactly to the music. So I said, okay, whoever comes up with the best chorus gets this chocolate. Oh, we had so many entries. And then for one of the other pieces on the album, El Bodiguero, we actually sing the original text, which says, Toma chocolate, paga lo que debes, which means take the chocolate and pay what you owe. But my Cuban friends changed that to take the chocolate if it's there and pay if you can. <laughs> They have a really hard deal in life right now. I mean, even worse than, than the, the last few years. It's really, really tough. Breaks my heart. But when you hear them making music, they are just so happy when they play music and dance. And you just can't get them down. And it's fantastic. They they stay positive in a, in a good sense. Positive is a terrible word since COVID, but they stay in a positive mood. And they say, oh, we've been through so much bad stuff. We'll get through this as well. And although they are having really tough lives and have maybe gotten up at five in the morning to stand in a long line for a loaf of bread, they won't let that interfere with their music making. And I must say, that's something that I really have taken away from this project, and that's to be really grateful for what I have. The recording sessions for this release took place in a church, and they were late-night recording sessions. Can you talk about what was so special 
about those sessions for you and the orchestra? Well, our recordings were always late night because Havana, as you all probably know, is not the quietest city in the world. There's a lot of music that goes out on out in the streets at night. There's a lot of dogs that fight. The, 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 the street vendors go up and down and shout and sing their wares. We had a bread guy that would come at about 11 p.m. every night. And in the church we recorded in, it's all downtown and it was all very loud. So we had to start late at night. So we would get there about 9 p.m. and start around 10 p.m. And we had to often wait till even later. So the atmosphere was very, very nice. It was it was like it was just a nightly thing. It was almost like having jet lag. You know, you, we'd work till two or three in the morning. And then a lot of the musicians live very far out of town, so they wouldn't even get home till three or four in the morning. And you'd wake up the next day and think of oh, what time zone am I in? But it was a beautiful, it was very serene. It was, it was a wonderful atmosphere in the church. It was very hot. I mean, there's nothing like no air conditioning there. So it was still incredibly hot, which is not great for horn playing because when you sweat a lot, your mouthpiece starts to, to, to move around your face and the hands are sweaty. And then the good old famous valves, the third finger doesn't want to work. But um, there were there were challenges that we had animal challenges. We had uh, many dog fights outside. We had a cat that wouldn't leave and demanded her dinner. We had a bird that that wouldn't go to sleep that had found its way into the church. And we had a cricket who literally almost ruined the recording. Mr. Cricket. He came out at about midnight every night, between midnight and 1 a.m., and he made such a noise on his own, and we couldn't find where he was. You can never see a cricket. He was up some in some wall somewhere. So we worked out that if we pounded on one particular part of the wall, he would be quiet for about 20 minutes. So we had to always have someone on cricket duty. <laughs> And he would always start up, usually in my most important bits. And, you know, we everyone went a bit crazy. And on this recording, you can actually still hear him in, in one bit, that I ended up recording part of the Guaguanco, which is just horn alone, in the middle of the night. The orchestra had gone home, I think it was about 2.30 in the morning. And uh, and he, he just wouldn't shut up. And because everyone had gone home, there was no one to pound on the walls. So I just said, ah, let him be in it. So if you listen very carefully, you can hear Mr. Cricket. Oh, fun. I'll have to go back and listen to that more closely. <laughs> One of those late night sessions produced a piece that's kind of a surprise ending to this recording. It is Mozart, a very famous duet from his opera, The Magic Flute. Tell us more about that. Well, on album one, we did uh, um, a Cuban version of Eine kleine Nachtmusik, and we we remixed the Mozart Horn Concerto Number no. Three, the Rondo. So we'd done quite a lot of mixing of Mozart and Mambo. And on album two, I had this original piece, which is the focus, the Cuban dances, the Horn Concerto, the the very first Horn Concerto ever to come out of Cuba. So that was my real focus, and the Mozart Horn Concertos, of course. But. Of course, we couldn't let you all go home without a little bit of Mozart mix. So we got the Sarabanda back together, and that's a seven-piece salsa band that we'd formed for album one. 
And they can all, all work, they can only work in the middle of the night because they, they're all big time session players and, and band and nightclub players. So they could only come once they'd finished recording. And there was a thunderstorm that night, I remember. So everyone was late. So we literally turned on the red light, I think about 2 a.m. I mean, <laughs> it was crazy. And we have a wonderful mix of this Papageno Papagena aria right at the end of the opera where they're talking about how many kids they're going to have and, and how their life's going to be. And when I was creating this with the arranger, Edgar Olivero, who's a Cuban who now lives in Spain, I said, uh, can you, you know, make it funny, but what are, who should be my Papageno? And he came up with the idea of the, of the baritone saxophone, which is one of my favorite instruments of all time. And I think just those very few notes have made so many people laugh so much listening to, we, we've called it pa pa pa. And it just, you just don't expect it at all. And you hear these bop, bop, bop. So Papageno is a baritone saxophone and the French horn is Papagena. And in a Cuban style, and we put a very famous Cuban contra dance in the middle of it. So yet another dance. So I just wanted to send people out with a smile on their face. Mozart, Mambo, and Cuban Dances. It's the second of a three-volume series from horn player Sarah Willis. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer of new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. <laughs>